All right, Dan, it is a great time of year, especially if you're a Cubs fan, right? The Cubs are in the playoffs right now as the baseballs are, baseball playoffs are about to kick off. And today we are going to head to Dion's first sports love, although you just told me you've never been to a Cubs game. I can't believe this. And you're right. I have never been to a Cubs game, and, and I'm probably one of the biggest Cubs fans you know. I mean, this was one of my first memories is growing up with my grandfather sitting on his lap and watching Cub games. So for me to have not been there, I feel like I want to slap myself, but... I'll sit back and, and, and relax a little bit and get ready to enjoy the second season. We'll uh, we'll send this link to the Ricketts family and we'll you know try to blatantly beg for some tickets. I'm sure that'll work. Really, hey, we really got some easily. Illinois they've people up there, man. They've got nothing better to do than to listen to us. <laughs> uh, th- thanks for joining us on the Fado with Deion Thomas and Eric Schmidt. Now, baseball is my favorite sport. Dion played his entire professional hoops career in foreign countries. So we're going to tie a few things together in this episode. We're also in the midst of Hispanic Heritage Month. And Puerto Rico is on many of our minds after the devastation from Hurricane Maria, making things very timely to do this today. So we are honored to be joined by baseball historian Professor Adrian Burgos for today's chat. He is the editor-in-chief of La Vida Baseball, which is a digital media platform that celebrates the passion of Latino baseball's past, present, and future. La Vida Baseball shares short and long-form stories providing an important perspective on what's made baseball an integral part of the Latino experience for more than 150 years. Dr. Burgos is also a professor of history at the University of Illinois, specializing in U.S. Latino history, sport history, and urban history. Dr. Burgos, welcome. Did I miss anything? I think you got it covered. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, tell us how you got involved with the, I first want to know about the La Vida Baseball uh, project, because this is, uh, you guys launched in March right around the World Baseball Classic, and it it was very timely then, and I've been tracking on it, and the the journalism on that is just fantastic. How did you get involved with it? Well, it's uh, it's an experience that maybe Dion can relate to. I was recruited. So, uh, you know, I have been researching Latinos in baseball for pretty much my whole academic career, but it actually begins way before then. I played high school ball. I played college ball. When I was a a major in history in undergrad, I begged my professor. We had to write a senior thesis. I wanted to write on baseball's introduction to Caribbean. And part of that is as a Puerto Rican born in New York, I grew up seeing my, not just my parents, but my grandparents being part of the baseball scene. And the way I describe it in my first book is, you know, Sunday mornings we'd be in church and a Latino church is very similar to well, the one I went to, very similar to the African-American experience because it was basically church with the salsa band. And so we had the horns going, the drums going and everybody's loud, making a joyful noise. And then in the afternoon, we're at a ballpark and the same people that were shouting hallelujahs and everything are like, get them out, throw them out. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? Where is this passion coming from? And I said, that's why I want to study. What is baseball's role in the Caribbean cultures? And that same kind of passion is what La Vida Baseball explores. Our history, our current players, our future. And La Vida Baseball, Teamworks Media was talking and created a partnership with the Baseball Hall of Fame. And they talked about who do they want to reach out to to help you know, build this project and my friends at the Hall of Fame's like, you guys gotta get, gotta get in touch with Adrian Burgos. And so I, I, I'm thankful to my friends at the Hall of Fame for having that confidence in me, but they saw the passion, they see the love, and that's what we tried to really convey at La Vida. 
because baseball for us as a Latino community, it is what connects us to the present. It connects us to our family. I love talking about my parents because my dad likes baseball, but my mom loves baseball. And I wrote a story about that in this column I have called El Profe. It's called Catching Louisiana Lightning. And that story is all about how my mom basically stopped Ron Guidry in his tracks in the parking lot in Fort Lauderdale at Yankee <laughs> Stadium because I told her, there he is. I didn't get his autograph. And she's like whistles and Ron saws. He smiles and waves us over. And that's my mom. She's a huge baseball fan. And she shared that. It goes even farther back. I'll share one more story before we dig in on these uh, the, the current season and the history. Share any stories you want. We'd love to hear them. My, uh, my first book is called Playing America's Game. I had just finished it. I submitted it to my press. I went down to Georgia to visit my parents, where they live now. One of my uncles came up from Florida, Sarasota. His name is Jose Antonio Bulgo. So here I am, history prof, did all this research, and I'm like, did you know there was a player in the Negro Leagues who played shortstop by the name of Jose Antonio Bulgos? He also played in the Puerto Rican League with the Lions of Ponce. And my uncle looks at me, he smiles, and says, did you know your grandmother named me after him? I was floored. Wow. I had no idea. But that was how much my paternal grandmother loved baseball, that she named her youngest son after one of her favorite players. Well, that's amazing. I mean, and, and I understand and I've seen and I had an opportunity to go on and look at the website and, and I could tell you I was impressed. Uh, I have to as a baseball fan, I'm sorry to know, you know, I feel a little bad because I didn't know it was there, but I'm glad I know now and I'm looking forward to to continue content on La Vida Baseball. But let's I, I guess if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to go back to the beginning. How did baseball become so big? And, and within the Latin, Latin American community, I mean, the Latin community, not just Latin America, but as a whole. Yeah. And, you know, I appreciate the question. Even when you uh, had that little correction there, you know, what La Vida Baseball does in part is connect the U.S. Latinos with all of Latin America and vice versa through baseball, because baseball has been that connection for us. You know, the platform really is English first in how we tell our stories, but we interview Yari Molina, when I sat with him in spring training, I'm like, and Espanolo Ingles, English or Spanish, however you want it, we can do it. And the players appreciate that. And our philosophy is we want them to speak in the language they're most comfortable in, can give us the kind of most eloquent quote that the passion can come out mm -hmm. because we have no problem translating it. And we'll put the subtitles if he does it in Spanish. And we actually, oftentimes, if he does the interview in English, we'll put Spanish subtitles so that people can also relate to it and gain access to it. And baseball's arrival to the Caribbean, to Cuba first, actually occurred in the 1860s. It's 150 plus years of baseball in Latin America, and it starts in Cuba. And one of the fascinating things is what we had were Cuban elites who sent their kids to study in the United States. They had began to shift away from just sending them to Europe, to Spain, to France to study. And he began to send them to the United States. And it was right at the moment where baseball was becoming a national pastime in the United States. And so these guys, because they were actually mostly men, learned the game and they brought it back with them to Cuba. And once baseball arrived in Cuba, Cubans embraced it as their sport. And that's what helped 
the Cubans become what was later called the apostles of baseball throughout Latin America. Because wherever Cubans went, they shared baseball. And even before the U.S. military arrived at some of these ports throughout Latin America, baseball had already arrived because the Cubans and other individuals had brought the game. How cruel is it? I, I mean, it's amazing. You know, I didn't realize it was Cuba, but it's, I don't know, it's not ironic, but it's, it's almost cruel in a sense that these are the guys that it's the hardest to come to America to play professionally now, too. Yeah, and again, this is part of what my, uh, my research as the scholar has focused on, but even the dynamics that we at the Baseball look at is understanding that history about, you know, how many Cubans are in the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, the ones that are from the Negro Leagues. And then because we've been able to, there was a steadier flow of talent from Cuba into the Negro Leagues and in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. But yes, we do have Tony Perez, who was born in Cuba, elected into the Hall of Fame, but also some of us in Puerto Rico have adopted him as one of our own. So even I at times forget, and it's partly because Eduardo, his son, was born in Puerto Rico, married a Puerto Rican, you know, there's that part of the story. Which also gets at you know the migration of Latinos from one society to another and how that helped really move baseball. And again, it's about the politics that baseball has always had this story of politics. Even the the anecdote I shared earlier about how baseball arrived to Cuba was about politics. Cubans who no longer wanted to send their kids to be educated slash indoctrinated by the Spanish colonial rulers, began to send their kids to the United States to receive a different education. And that was the basis for baseball arriving to Latin America and to Cuba. It was political. Wow. That's, that's, but that's actually good, good to know. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think that would have ever been brought to light uh, for people to really understand how the migration of baseball back to Latin America and to the Caribbean um, took place. So th- thank you for that. I appreciate the history. It's just, oh, sorry, go well, ahead. I was going to say, you know, kind of jumping on that, Professor, because we mentioned in the beginning, this is a, you get this project is a multi-channel digital platform. So can you explain that? Explain who the audience is? Yeah, our audience, you know, we're seeking the Spanish-speaking, English-speaking audience members of the Latino community, but any baseball fan. We want to communicate through video, through short-term, and even now uh, long-form writing, and through our various uh, projects that we do in with teams, with the leagues, with lasmayores.com, in communicating the passion, the flair, the history of why Latinos are so invested in baseball so much, And we love sharing that with everybody. So you can reach us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can follow us in various different ways. And our goal is to share the passion. And sometimes it's historical and educational. Other times it's just getting to know the players. And, you know, baseball's fun. And we saw it at the World Baseball Classic. You see it in many different ways. For example, just yesterday, when Starling Castro hit the home run with the Yankees and he comes into the dugout and there's an impromptu fake press conference that the other <laughs> Latino players 
And you see Didi Gregorius there, Severino's there, Torres has the fake, uh, uh, he's actually has a, the cup holder over his shoulder, like a camera, and they're interviewing him. And it's just like, I saw that and I'm like, that is La Vida Baseball. That's what we love to share. Baseball's fun. You know, Bryce Harper gets it. Let's make baseball fun. It is fun. That's what we're all about at La Vida. And I agree with you 100 percent. You know, the first time I saw the the impromptu interview was Javi Baez. And I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I believe. And and it was one of my questions I want to have to you was with the with the influx of the Latin players. What do you think their biggest contribution has been? I, I in my opinion, and, and I'll let you answer. Your, but in my opinion, I love the flair. I, I love the attitude. I love the, as you say, the salsa music because you can see everybody's rhythm and everything going on in the game. That's my biggest takeaway. I love it. You know, of course, they're great players, but I love that part of it. What, in your opinion, what would you think it would be? You know, there's two dimensions of what you brought out. Part of the flair is about the culture and the passion. Um, and what's interesting is how often it was misinterpreted what they were doing. Mm -hmm. I give the example of Vic Power, and then I'm gonna go to Omar Vizquel. Vic Power was the first, he's black Puerto Rican. Again, most people didn't realize he was Puerto Rican uh, until he spoke, and then they're like, oh, wow, he speaks with an accent. It's like, well, that's because it's Victor (laughs) Bayonne. And and Vic Power was the first first baseman who actually did the one-handed glove at first. Prior to that, they would hold both their left and right hand, their gloved hand and their free hand, and they will reach around to try to catch the ball at first base. Because he did it with one hand, he was labeled a hot dog. He was labeled as a poor fielder. And he was literally traded away from the Yankees under the, the description of he was, well, one, they said he wasn't a, a Negro worth waiting for, in their words of one of the GMs. And two, that he was a poor fielder. What happens when the gold glove is initiated as an award in baseball. Vic Power won the first nine gold gloves for first baseman. The first nine he was eligible for, he won. And part of that is about how the culture of what he was doing, he was an innovator. He was saving time. This is exactly what Omar Vizquel did. He was the one who originated catching the ball on the outside of the glove for a double play. And if you think about how many times a tenth of a second, two tenths of a second is what got a guy out at first base. That's the difference between catching the ball on the inside and transferring to your free hand and catching it on the outside and throwing it. But again, when Omar started doing that, he was a hot dog. He's unorthodox. He's hard to coach. And now what do you see? Everyone's trying to coach those middle infielders how to catch it on the outside. We know through sabermetrics, advanced analytics, every tenth of the second counts. Mm-hmm. And yet, through a cultural lens, Vizquel and others were seen or, or even described as hot dogs, as flamboyant, as uh, even in some instances as uncoachable. On the flip side, it's that style, that flair. Part of what I'm trying to say, folks, is they were doing this knowing that they would save time, they would get outs. This is not accident. This is Javi Baez and tags. Javi... And I'll give you another example about Javi because I was there for this game in, in Wrigley Field. He scores from second base on an infield Kyle Schwarber swinging bunt. 
And one of the first questions to Joe Madden in the postgame press conference was, was that all about Javi's athleticism? And Joe corrected the sports writer and said, no. Javi saw the play before anyone. It's all about baseball intelligence and smarts. Yes, you need the athleticism to execute it, but he saw that play like a good running back sees a hole opening before it's even open. He's done this before. He knows it. He's reading everything on the field. Javi, for example, when he did that tag at the World Baseball Classic, the no-look tag, he was in perfect position. Yachty threw the perfect throw down a second, and he was celebrating that Yachty threw the throw exactly where he needed to put that tag. That Unless that sliding player could somehow levitate himself over the glove, that, that guy was out. And that's what Javi brings. And that's what the Latino, what we call flair brings, but it's rooted in so much practice. How, and Dion, you know about this from basketball. How many times does you, are you coached on you drill and you practice your footing, your placement? Javi, it's, it's not natural. He works on this. Yeah. And that's what is often lost in what we see when it's performed is how much work it takes to be that good. No, and, and you're 100% right. And I'm glad you brought it back to that because having played as long as I have, having coached the way I have, I have all these kids and, and I used to say, well, you know, they'll go out and they'll try to make a shot like Kobe Bryant. And I was like, well, you do realize that Kobe shoots that, that particular shot a thousand times a day in practice in order to be able to make that shot. And I think that's one of the part, and I hate to bring, you know, race and culture in this, but I think that's one of the things that gets lost um, when a player like a Javi Baez makes a great play or a player like Kobe Bryant, uh, forget, you know, makes a great play. These are things that they've worked on from the very beginning, but yet, you know, and I shouldn't say Kobe because he's young. And when, you know, when you look at older players back in the day, what uh, Earl of Pearl Monroe with different moves that he would do and people would, as you said, call him a hot dog and label him a hot dog and they're, they're playing this way. This is a part of, one, who you are, two, what you've learned and the countless of hours, you know, that they put to put out on the hard, well, not the hardwood, but on the asphalt. And as far as, you know, Javi and, and previous players before him that they've learned out on the diamond, that gets lost uh, because of the ideas, the old ideas of what baseball, basketball and all the other sports were. I mean, and, and one of my favorite players and, and my wife, you know, loves him as well. Carmelo Anthony. A lot of people don't realize Carmelo Anthony's Puerto Rican. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and so it, it goes across both sports and 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 as well as life in general. Um, and and I think people just forget that. And I'm so glad that you made a point to point out that, like you said, yeah, he has the athleticism. That's that's God given, but he has the IQ, the baseball IQ, and as well as a work ethic to be able to make that particular tag or any other play that he makes. And he does it playing second base, shortstop, and third base. It's still there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's an interesting dynamic, though, too, because it, it, baseball seems to be this is the game that the Latinos are playing at with this flair um, at a high level in a in a that a lot of people see right. In American baseball, is such a conservative game. Yeah. And I think Americans in general, you talk about basketball, right? So there's trash talk in basketball. And when people are doing things and they get excited, sometimes, you know, the opponents take it personally. And football, by the way. Yeah, and and that sport too. But you talk about baseball, 
And I think American baseball players see another player of Latino ancestry celebrating on the field like the Baez play, right? He is celebrating the throw. He was celebrating the throw before it got there. Mm -hmm. But it's not at the expense of the opponent. It's not a trash talk. And I think there's a confusion there for American baseball players. And I can tell you from experience just playing in men's leagues now, there's a couple of of, uh, Latin baseball teams that we play. And they play with that flair and that joy and that excitement and they talk and they're loud and they cheer their team on. And then, you you know, we've got college guys from America here that they, they take offense to it. It's almost like somebody's in their grill talking crap to them. And it's like, you know, you got to you got to separate the sports. You have to pay a little more attention to. It. I mean, how much do you hear about that, Professor? In, in in you know, when you go to a spring training and you start talking to these guys, and an American player might walk by. I mean, do you ever hear any of those stories? Is there resentment there? Well, I want to I'm going to take your larger point. I'm going to focus on that for a minute Perfect. because it reminds me of interviews I did with Orlando Cepeda and Juan Marichal. These two are to this day best friends. And they were teammates with the the, uh, San Francisco Giants. They were in St. Louis. They were playing a series against St. Louis. I believe it was 1963. And there were rumors that the Giants were going to trade Cepeda to the Cardinals. And Orlando and Juan could not believe that, you know, management would break up the team and particularly get these two guys who have been such good friends apart. The trade happens. First time Orlando Cepeda gets up to the plate, what does Juan Marichal do? He said, sit your butt down. He threw right at him and knocked him down. (laughs) That's his best friend. But it's between the lines. It's game time. Right. And I asked Juan Marichal about this story. And he says, and you know what? After the game, we we went out to eat dinner. And like that's what people have a hard time understanding, that you can be competitive, you can enjoy the game, you can knock your best friend down to the ground. And after the game, it's like, game's over. Let's go have, let's go have dinner. People don't see that side of the Latino baseball culture, and people lose that. Now, to get more fully into your question, Eric, one thing that baseball has lost, and a lot of it is because of the Major League Baseball working agreements with the Winter Leagues, is that players, U.S.-born players, don't get enough exposure to what it means to be a foreigner. When they used to go down to the Dominican, even as a player like Reggie Jackson, Jim Palmer, five, six, seven-year veterans, and they went to Puerto Rican League, they went to the Dominican League, they played in Venezuela, what they got exposed to was that sense of being in a different land, but also that how people welcomed them and received them how their Latino teammates would often flip the script and like, you're in my country now, let me show you how we welcome you all. That has been lost. And too many of the star American players, white, and in some instances, even African-American, haven't had that opportunity to be in that setting. And that has actually had the impact of allowing friction to develop between the U.S. baseball culture and the Latino baseball cultures because they don't experience it front, uh, firsthand. And again, go to the World Baseball Classic and look at the reaction of particularly the game in Miami when, when the U.S. was playing against, I think it was a Dominican, and how loud it was. And one of the pitchers, the relief pitchers, was like, I had for the U.S. teams, like I had never been 
on a mound in a stadium that was so loud and actually rooting against us. And like that's every day when you're pitching for the Aguilas in the Dominican and you're playing against Escogido. Like that's the experience in the Dominican League. They're going to be loud. They're going to be get on you and all that. But for him, it was like he was it was what he basically said. It's one of the first moments I was scared because I don't know what like his world was blown up. It's like, what's going on? But yeah. that's what's missing, that ability to kind of flip it. And like now you are in a different setting well, well, and this is how we receive you. Gee, walking in somebody else's shoes to help you understand what they have to deal with. What a novel concept. I mean, who would have ever thought? But I didn't realize that they used to do that. And that's amazing. And it's it's. It is a shame that, you know, these players don't have those opportunities because yeah, I guess the American player only gets to see these types of teammates they when, they're in, when they're in the minor leagues. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. the first experience they get in. You know, I mean, the, the, what's that experience like for these kids? And Dion, you can speak to it, too. When you go, you know, you played your entire professional career in a foreign country. I was, I several was just, foreign countries. Several foreign countries. I was actually just about to draw the parallel. And, and I would have to agree with you, Professor Bertigo's is that Americans aren't exposed, black or white, aren't really exposed to different cultures enough to really understand it. Because I know when I went and, and, and I met my wife in Europe, my wife is Israeli. And as we were there, the 14 years we were there, so she witnessed a lot of the sporting events there. My, my children witnessed the sporting events there. And then when we came back here and we would go to different sporting events, my wife would be like, oh, my God, it's so boring. <laughs> you know, because it lost that flair, that take her to passion. A golf? You take her to a golf outing? Uh, no, she, she'd shoot herself. Sorry, just... uh, or maybe me for taking her today <laughs> golf outing. Sorry, sorry to interrupt your thought there. But... <laughs> no, but, and, and, I, believe, and I, I fully believe this is one of the things and the experiences that American players, you know, whatever sport it is, really miss out on is the passion that you get from the fans. I mean, I likened it to playing in some of the most hostile uh, uh, college stadiums like you know you go you play with the crazies at Duke you know if you're in North Carolina I mean it's on that level but 10 times more and, and but that's what's so exciting about it and I think you know when we forget that that's where we we end up falling off and, and that creates like you said creates a fiction uh, friction because players don't understand where other players come from and what they've experienced and and I think that's a bad thing, but I think it's a great thing if they start to really branch out. Because like you, Eric, I didn't realize that the players were going over and playing, especially that far back, playing in the winter in the winter leagues uh, in, in the Caribbean and Central and uh, Latin America. So that's it great. Dion, what was the toughest place you had to play overseas because of that? The toughest place I had to play was actually in Tel Aviv, Turkey. I mean, Tel Aviv, Turkey. I sound like an idiot. When I was playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv, and we went to play in Turkey. So we were playing a, a, a team called um, F.S. Pilsen. And it's, it's not so much a rival, but we were battling for to advance in the, Euro, in the EuroLeague Championship. So unfortunately, the Turkish people are a little bit crazier, I believe, than anyone else in the world. So as we, at the end of the game, when we beat them, they begin to throw batteries, like D batteries, <laughs> at us out on the floor. Not to mention the smoke bombs and the M80s and and all those Everybody things. Hear all the stories of smoke in those stadiums. Yeah. Oh my God, this was crazy. So I'm sure the baseball fans don't do that. 
surprise in the Caribbean. <laughs> but that too is part of the experience. <laughs> that it is. It, 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 it truly makes you uh, reflect on how things are here. Professor, what about the style of play? Uh, and, and this is interesting. I, I don't know if you caught it. ESPN, the magazine, had a real quick blurb in the most recent uh, magazine that hit the stands. Um, and it was just a, a column, basically. And it, it talks about the, the gap between Latin American players and American in, in walks. Okay, and this is one of my, and I forgot about this quote, but you remember Juan Samuel, he had a long career in the major leagues, pretty good, several good years with the Phillies from the Dominican. And he said, you don't walk off the island, you hit. And, they t- and, it, and it leads to the different style of play. They're more aggressive I- I- as they talk in the sabermetrics. They, that's what they pulled in about, you know, we haven't had a, a Latin American hitter lead the league in walks until David Ortiz did in 2006. So s- using that as a jump off, style of play differences. Uh, and, I, you know, part of it and what Samuel is actually getting at is there has not been, and I'm going to be extreme about this, but I think it's pretty correct. No one has been signed out of the Dominican Republic as a 16-year-old prospect because he had a good eye. That's not what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. They're looking for how far can you hit the ball? How well is your stroke? What? How, how you might fill your body out? They, they don't scout and sign players from the Dominican for their, for their hitting eye. Why, no. why is that? Is that? And that's different than scouting an American player, right? Why, why the difference? Because when you're signing a 16-year-old, it's all about potential. Yes. And so when you're, you can't – you have to gauge how strong he is, how, how his muscles twitch when he's swinging that bat, and does he have a Vladimir Guerrero-type body, and is he going to grow and fill out a certain way? You know, are you, we had this great article on La Vida Baseball about bad ball hitting. And what's Vlad fascinating, Guerrero. Vlad, Guerrero, <laughs> Vlad Guerrero, the best and ever. And part of what you learned, and even guys today, like Jose Altuve, that is, there is an art to bad ball hitting. And think about how many times they swing at bad balls and put it into play. Mm-hmm. And like balls out of the strike zone that Vlad Guerrero hit, if I remember correctly, he batted over 200. On, on balls that were out of the strike zone. That means one out of every five times he swung out a bad ball, he actually got on base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what people are, are looking at when they see how a kid swings. Um, now, the antithesis of that, and he too is Latino, but he pl- grew up primarily in the United States, is Albert Pujols. You talk about di- uh, plate discipline and batting eye? That's Albert. Yeah. But that's because he really developed his baseball acumen here in the United States. And that's how he got drafted and signed. And that's the difference is what do you look for in the difference between a U.S. born and predominantly the guys in the United States are being signed out of college programs. Mm-hmm. True. And so that's where if he's swinging like a crazy man and hasn't developed the discipline at 21, 22 years old. You know, in the U.S., they're like, ah. Probably not you know, happening. They're not happening. Yeah. However, at 16, 
they're not looking for that. And that's what gets you signed is, you know, not if you can walk off the island, get you hit yourself off the island. So I, we want to get back to that, the player that's 16, 17 years old that comes here and is playing professionally. But let's go back before that. How do these scouts find these players? What, what's Major League Baseball been doing to encourage that or to try and find more of these kids? You know, again, this goes way back. You know, Latin America has been a talent pool for Major League Baseball going back to the 19-teens. And that is when the Cincinnati Reds and the Washington Senators were interested in getting good talent cheaply. Hmm. And that's what Latin America was. That what was Cuba was. Now, it was a different story in the Negro Leagues. The Negro Leagues weren't looking for cheap Latin American talent. They were looking for good Latin American talent. And so the very – and typically what you got out of Latin America in the Negro Leagues was the very best players – out of, and that's your Cristobal Torrientes, your Jose Mendez, your Martin de Eagles. The flip of that was what Major League Baseball was looking at out of Latin America also was, was that player not black? Could he be presented to the U.S. public in the era of segregation as someone who is not black? And that is not a measure of how good you were, but rather how passable you were. And so we actually see, except with perhaps the exception of Adolfo Luque, who pitched many years in, you know, he was in the 1919 World Series pitching for the Reds. He was in the 1933 World Series pitching for the Giants. He actually has two World Series rings. Except outside of Adolfo Luque, all the real stars of Latino baseball played in the Negro Leagues prior to 1947 and Jackie Robinson breaking the color line. And that, again, is because the emphasis was on talent in the Negro Leagues, and the emphasis in the Major Leagues was on can he pass as not black. And so, yes, we do get a number of star players, and what we everything breaks open with Jackie Robinson. And that's where you see the era of Minoso and Clemente and Luis Aparicio, and you see those guys were already playing baseball. The difference was that Major League Baseball opened the gates. And you see just the level of talent that comes in was transformative. And it was in 1967, 50 years ago this year, that more than 10 percent, that Major League Baseball became 10 percent or more Latino. And most people are, are, that means like one out of every nine player in the major leagues was a Latino. That was 1967. This is not recent. You know, that's older than I am. Right. (laughs) And so, you know, again, this is part of what the story about how the game it has already changed. And oftentimes we have not been fully aware or embraced that change that has already happened. Well, I, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, the change has already happened. I mean, and I think people don't look at history uh, well enough to understand and I mean on on all levels not just from a, a sports standpoint but I believe from a, a cultural and, and especially American history standpoint and I think history sometimes gets lost we were talking off mic earlier uh, about Alex Pompez the owner of the the New York Cubans and how he was you know in the Negro Baseball League and you've mentioned them several times can you tell us a little bit about the history of and then we can kind of zoom forward uh, from there. Uh, you know, again, Alex Pompez was Cuban-American, born in Key West, grew up mostly in Tampa, and went as a young man to Harlem. 
And that's where he made his money in the numbers game, and that is the illegal lottery. And then he used that money to fund his black baseball team in the Negro Leagues, the Cuban Stars, and later he renamed them to New York Cubans. That team was the team that brought Minnie Minoso, known then as only Orestes Minoso, to the United States in 1946 to play then as a third baseman. Alex Montpez had an eye for talent, and the other part about that was he was the first Negro League owner to bring talent from Puerto Rico into the Negro Leagues, from the Dominican Republic into the Negro Leagues, from Panama into the Negro Leagues, from Venezuela into the Negro Leagues. You know, most of the other owners had focused just on Cuba. Now, a really interesting thing happens when the New York Cubans folds in 1950, and that is the New York Giants baseball team hires Alex Pompez. And I talk about all this in Cuban Star, my second book. They hire Alex Pompez because Pompez had pointed them in the right direction on two really big guys, Monty Irving and a young outfielder named Willie Mays. Hmm. And Pompez used his Negro League connections to help position the Giants to sign those two players. And that was the beginning of real integration for the Giants because they took it from the playing field to the front office. And eventually, Alex Pompez becomes their director of international scouting. And he is the one who opens the Dominican pipeline, and he helps sign Alou. He helps sign not just Felipe, but of course, Maddie, Jesus. He helped sign Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, Manny Mota, but he also helped sign Willie McCovey, Willie Kirkland, um, uh, Marshall Bridges. He signed the first Bahamian, Andre Rogers, to play in Major League Baseball. And so what we see is Pompez used what he learned in the Negro Leagues in being a scout for a major league team, and it transformed the New York Giants slash San Francisco Giants team. And one of the key figures in that was Alex Pompez hired his former shortstop, a Dominican named Horacio Martinez, to be his eyes on the ground in the Dominican Republic. And as a bird dog scout, Martinez he knew precisely what Alex Pompez was looking for in a, in a prospect because he was one for Alex Pompez. And he played for Pompez's team for over a decade. And that's what gave the Giants the jump ahead on everybody else. But Pompez opened the Dominican pipeline. And it was after him that we see this influx of Dominican players into the major leagues. Wow, that's a great story. I'm looking forward to reading your book, by the way. <laughs> I'm truly looking forward to it. You know, my, my really, my first, uh, well, I shouldn't say my first, uh, one of my first um, names that ever came to me that was a, a, a foreign, no, I shouldn't say foreign, but a Latino baseball player was Roberto Clemente. Now, of course, I, I didn't know much at this young age but his school, he had a high school named after him that was very close to my house, right on 20, 22nd in Ashland. And so we would ride by this on the bus, and I would ask my grandmother, who was Roberto Clemente? And she was like, ah, he was a baseball player. You know, one grandparent knew baseball. My other, grand, my other grandmother had no interest in knowing anything about baseball or sports at all. So that's all she would. That was her uh, uh, introduction. Well, he's a baseball player. So as a kid, I had to go up and, and look um, look up uh, Roberto Clemente and, and see who he was, what he's done, and, and just a little bit of his background. 
now with him having been uh, been inducted, of course, uh, way back in '73, I believe it was, into the Hall of Fame. What what does his name and and what he's done do for other Latin Ameri- Latin uh, baseball players? Roberto Clemente. You know, as a Puerto Rican, as someone who grew up here in the States, who the name Clemente is a revered name. It is, and not just for Puerto Ricans, but other Latinos. I mean, the man died helping Nicaraguans, you know, not because he saw them as also part of his people, Mm -hmm. as fellow Latin Americans, as fellow Latinos. And he saw a need that the concern that relief supplies, and this is also very timely because of what's going on in Puerto Rico, the relief supplies were not getting to the people. And that is why he got on a plane that was overweight with supplies and not properly stowed. And it, he lost his life for it. But if you go to La Vida Baseball and you see the video, the interview that we did with Chichi Rodriguez, you will see the power of what Clemente means. Because Chi-Chi was so emotional as I asked him the questions. And the powerful words that Chi-Chi shared, Chi-Chi actually played baseball. He wanted to be a ball player before a golfer. Uh, he, he has great stories that he shares about that. But when talking about Clemente, he's like, God chooses the right people for the right moment for the right thing. That was Roberto Clemente. What a way to die. What a way to live. And this is the reverence that even so many years after Roberto's death still hits us. The other part about that, and this is where it connects back to Puerto Rico and what's going on this very moment. As soon as the devastation of Hurricane Maria was being illuminated to us, and I, I do that paradoxically because actually it was that we were in the dark. Mm-hmm. You know, I, my wife and I could not talk to her parents in the southwest corner for six days. Full, we were full of worry that the worst had happened to them. We're fortunate in that we were able to reestablish contact and talk to them. They're okay. Good. But the island is suffering so much right now. And Carlos Beltran, in the spirit, in honor of his people, and in the spirit of Clemente, the man stepped up. He didn't say, oh, I want to donate 5000 10000 He's like, I am donating $1 million. Come join me. Let's lift our island up. Let's rebuild. People need our help. And when I spoke with Clemente's widow, Vera Clemente, about, and we also interviewed her son for La Vida Baseball, when we asked them, who do you see as the person that best embodies, both as a player, but also as a humanitarian, the spirit of Clemente. They did not stutter, they didn't blink an eye, Carlos Beltran. And Carlos showed us exactly why that is so. And, you know, people are suffering and we still need to do more and to push Congress and the president to move more quickly it's been eight days. There are still people without access to power. I mean, we're, we're recording right now on September 28th. You know, I hope that in the coming days, the supplies that are even on the ground already are, is able to get out to the people. 
because we are a resilient people. We are a people of love and, and, and just spirit. And, you know, for those of us who are sometimes we refer to ourselves as diasporicans. And within that, I mean, we can include Francisco Lindor, Javi Baez, guys who were born in the, in, on the island, but actually grew up partly here in the States. You know, it pains us that we're in a position that we cannot reach out to our family members immediately and help them. It is just a terrifically bad moment and we implore others to help as best they can. You guys have, have taken the lead with Levita on, on that and some of the incidents and, and, and issues in Venezuela as well. How much have you been trying to use the, the platform and explain a little bit about how you guys have been doing things with that, trying to make a difference? Yeah. Thank you. Um, La Vida has been on top of the story in Venezuela since the beginning of the year. And again, part and, of what and, we're and Give us to a do- little background on the story, too, for those who may not know. Sorry to interrupt you. Sure. Um, you know, Venezuela is having... You know, it's been going on for several months. I mean, it goes to the last year of protest about the government and it's not, I mean, there is a lack of food, access to food, medical supplies. There's lots of concern about government corruption and that the people themselves are suffering, the Venezuelan people. And it's a country that has vast oil you know, it had had one of the most thriving economies, um, and the players, the Venezuelan players, are very much concerned. And what we sought to do at La Vida is to give the players a platform through which they can speak about the issues that are affecting their country while they're here abroad, and in many instances, you know, the ability to communicate. Is, is challenged because government is monitoring the phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's scaling, it's, it's shutting down certain internet sites. And, you know, students are, have been killed, protesters have been killed in speaking out against the government. And it affects every Venezuelan player. As I'm in the clubhouse sometimes, I approach some of the players and ask them if they want to say something. And I asked them first, you know, do they want to go on camera or not? Some of them say no. And then I said, okay, we won't record, but just tell me, how are you doing? How's your family? And oftentimes, and I'm talking to them in Spanish, and oftentimes these guys are like, they're, they need someone to talk to about it. You know, and, and they're, they're, this is the kind of platform we want La Vida to be, because again, it's that sense of shared Latino identity It's that shared sense of even, again, what Clemente did about being there for each other. And that is what we have sought to do in communicating. We have a number of articles. One of our regular contributors, Cesar Marquez, has reached out to a number of the the players, the Venezuelan players from um, Felix Hernandez, Miguel Cabrera, and others to talk to them about what's going on back home. Marquez himself, Cesar, is um, a Venezuelan who came over here because of the difficulties of him providing the needed medicines to his own daughter. And that was when when that began to affect his family so deeply, he's like, I have to leave. And, and think about the difficulty of that decision of leaving your country. And this is precisely what 
many Latinos are familiar with because it's also the story of Yaciel Puig, Yones Céspedes, Jose Abreu. It's the story of Mini Minoso. It's the story of Bert Campanaris and Tony Perez. The story of what the Venezuelan players is going through and the choices that Venezuelans are making about leaving their country behind is so familiar to us Latinos because it is the story of Jonas Céspedes, of Yaciel Puig, of Jose Abreu, about that difficult choice of leaving one's home country. And it's not just recent. It is the story of the Cuban players in the 1960s, of Tony Perez and Louis Tian. And this is what connects these players. And even in a different sense, it's the story of Dominicans as 16 and 70-year-old young men, if not still growing boys, leaving their native land to pursue a professional career in the United States. This is why, and, and there was an interview I did with Louis Tia in spring training. He, he says, Big Bobby, David Ortiz, and Pedro Martinez, those are my sons. They call me, they call me Bobby. They hug me every time they see me. Part of it is that reverence and that respect understanding what the pioneers had to go through, but what they shared in common is leaving their country for the majority of the year to play this thing that they love called baseball. And when you see Latino players interact, particularly across generation from what you see a very different dynamic than you see when a Mike Schmidt walks into a Philadelphia Phillies clubhouse. And so what we see when Louis... Martinez, excuse me, when Louis Tiant comes in to a Boston Red Sox clubhouse, we see something entirely different. Sorry, the ADT guy just came and it's, <laughs> well, I'm trying to make sure that we don't hear him in the background. We're good. Okay. I think we're good. <laughs> but, but okay, if Eric says we're good, then we're good. <laughs> All right. No, don't say that. But, uh, you, but you know, this actually kind of led me right into um, another question that I had. With the foreign relations that are going on right now between the U.S. and, and Venezuela and all of this, uh, I don't even Cuba. know what to call it, but mm-hmm. and, and with Cuba, h- how do you believe this will affect, um, you know, just what they're trying to do as far as develop the players and their, the leagues there? I mean, because, you know, here we, we get to have a little dysfunction in this. It's one thing. But to have dysfunction in some of these other places is could be catastrophic. You know, I, I have to quote Yogi Berra to even begin to approach an answer to that question, Dion, is both so important, and yet with the governments here in the United States, in Cuba, in Venezuela, the one thing in life that is consistent is you never know. And ah, it's such a difficult time and a stressful time because Major League Baseball wants to expand its footprint in Cuba, but the relationship between the Cuban government and the U.S. government was thrown into a flux with the election of Donald Trump as president. And similarly, Venezuela is in turmoil, and Trump is actually speaking very forcefully against the Venezuelan government. But what does that mean? What will that translate to? (laughs) And then we see Puerto Rico, and it's just... As a Latino, it becomes very difficult to gain a sense of stability, of direction, of what's going on 
with the future of Latinos in baseball, broad scale versus the narrow scale of, yeah, I think Lindor is going to have a great playoff, you know, and Javi, you know, is, is getting right at the right time. And like, there's those kind of narrow questions that like, it's about what's happening right now, but the future is so hard to really get a handle on it because of the leadership of these various countries makes it a wild card. And on the one hand, that's unnerving. And yet, if you study Latin American history and U.S.-Latin American relations, it's also very familiar. And that doesn't make it any better. (laughs) (laughs) No, because we're not learning from our mistakes. Exactly. But I was looking and I was reading this morning and that was just one of the things. And of course, watching the the television, I I ended up being a poli sci major. So that'll that'll let you know kind of where that question came from, because I look at it from, again, big picture. You're right. The the little stories that and the little questions that are there with the Latin American players that are already here and already playing, you know, they'll answer those because they're here. But as a, a, a lover of children, a lover of history, a lover of baseball, a, a lover of seeing people crawl, kick, run, scratch to get out of the predicament that they're in to better their lives and better for their family. This was a question that struck home, you know, home for me because I'm, you know, although I'm born and raised here in Chicago, grow up in the same situation as a lot of these kids, not knowing where your next meal comes from, not knowing if your lights are going to be on, you know, in these situations. So that was why that, 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 I felt that was a question I really needed to put out there. And, and, you know, I guess, like you said, no one knows what the future holds. And I mean, it's just really a question of what's next with uh, our government, first and foremost, I guess. Well, and how does that lead into, you know, Professor, you talked about the, some of the Cuban players and all the challenges that these guys have. And I think a lot of us know, you know, we don't have to get into the challenges that the Cuban-born players have to deal with just to get here. But let's talk about once they're here. You know, Dion, when you yeah. went overseas to play, you, you were a man. You know, you were in your it's, 20s. You were an adult. You had life experience at that point. You know, and you were hungry, obviously. Right. That's what led you there. But Professor, some of these kids, they're 16, 17 years old and they're getting dropped into a, a small town in the middle of nowhere and they have to fight for themselves. What, what leads to that decision-making and to say, this is the life I want to lead? And you know, how much of that is desperation? How much of that is just simple love of the game? What do they have to deal with? And, and I got another to add on to that. Is there help for them <clears throat> to make their adjustment when they get here? And, and I say that because when I went over to Europe, as Eric said, I was an adult, basically. I mean, I was 24 years old. (laughs) But I'm going to a foreign country where I basically was thrown into, and I was in Spain, so I had to learn Spanish extremely quickly because at that time no one spoke Spanish. Um, At least very few people spoke Spanish. So I can just imagine, like you said, what a 15, 16, 17-year-old that's coming over um, has to deal with. You know, and in different ways, we've covered how the transformation or kind of the adjustment takes place. Uh, we had this story uh, about Jose Abreu and Yuli Gurriel, who plays with the Houston Astros, and Abreu, of course, with the White Sox. And that it was the first trip for the Astros into Chicago. And we were interviewing Gurriel. La Vida Baseball was interviewing Gurriel. And we asked him something. And he said in passing that, Basically, I have to go back to the clubhouse because there's some food waiting for me that Jose Abreu sent over. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what? 
like there's a story there. And the story was that Jose is like, this is the first time my fellow countryman is coming into Chicago and I wanted him to have some of the flavors of home. So we packed it, you know, they ordered from a restaurant and got some black beans. We got some rice. We got some ropa vieja that is like shredded beef yes, and, yes. you know, the black beans and everything we got. We, and he not only bought enough, just, I mean, he didn't make one order. He bought <laughs> enough so that next thing you know, Carlos Carrera is up in there. Carlos Beltran is eating it. Like all the Latino players from the Astros were eating from what their opponent, Jose Abreu, had sent over to their clubhouse. And on one level, it's like, what? You're sending food to the other team before the game? That's against our like culture of baseball here in the United States. No, no. For for Abreu, it's like I gotta welcome my countrymen. He's you know he's dealing with that adjustment, and so that's at the big league level. And part of that is, you know, similar to you, Dion. When Jose Abreu arrived into the United States, he was an adult. He was a man. He was 25, 26 years old. And a number of the Cuban players. They typically were of that age. Now they're getting younger, like Johan Moncada and even uh, Ramirez, who was just signed with the, um, I believe that's his name, uh, a 16-year-old Cuban that just signed with the Cleveland Indians organization. And what we see is like those guys are getting younger and they're going to need to help even more. When a 16-year-old Dominican is coming out of the DR and going to Davenport, Iowa, or Quad Cities, or Walla Walla, Washington, there's a lot of well-meaning folk that received them and welcomed them, but the culture shock of food, of language, and of all those things, you know, that is real. And what a number of teams have done, and, you know, confession, I'm a Yankee fan. I was born in the Bronx. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale when they well, used to do spring training there. Well, forgive it. And, it. and it pains me to say that one of the teams that have done a lot to help the Latino players in adjustment is the Boston Red Sox. <clears throat> They have a curriculum. They have these things in the minor leagues where they're teaching the players about English and American culture, how to order food and how to pay your bills and, you know, all these kinds of things. And that is what helps facilitate cultural adjustment, put one at ease so that you can focus on baseball because you're there to be a professional baseball player. But we're still human. Right. And think, and I, this is what I love asking my students here at the U of I when we're talking about this. Think of what you were doing as a 16-year-old. Like you know, now you're 18, 19, 20, 21. You might be a senior, 22 years old here at the U of I. These individuals are coming to the United States as 16-year-olds and tell you're a professional. You're in a foreign land. Be a great baseball player and figure it out. Well, my mom wouldn't even let me get my driver's license until I was almost 17 because I couldn't <laughs> handle the responsibility. I mean, I can't imagine what these kids have to deal with. Yeah. And all the knucklehead moves we make at 16 year olds. You know, our, our biochemistry is going <laughs> crazy, you know, and these kids, because they're really kids as they get here, have to quickly grow up into men as part of their transition of being a professional ball player. That is a big task. Yeah. And again, you know, like you said, they, they get picked at that age or they get signed because of the potential and the physical abilities that they have. And then almost they have less of a chance because by the time they're 21 and 22, the decision's been made for them when a U.S. player is just coming out of college and still gets a chance to play a couple of years and show them what they have. So, yeah, I, I, I was watching the Big Ten Network uh, video about how October can be the, you know, the most anxiety ridden time for these guys. 
right, that, you know, October is a beautiful month for baseball because it's playoff. It's the fulfillment of a year's work for many guys. On the other hand, for the young Latino prospects and, and the minor leaguers, it is the most concerning month. Will I get picked up again? Will I be moved up? And if I'm 20 and still an A-ball, do they, will they say he's still worth it to move up to double-A and have him around next year? Or do I have to find the most difficult thing for a young Latino prospect or a minor leaguer is getting a second chance? Sure. A second team. Mm-hmm. Yep. A second organization. And Big Poppy's a great example of this. Yeah. Because if you read his biography and you talk to Pedro Martinez, when he got cut or let go by the twins, mm-hmm. the man was crying. He thought he was done because he had read – that was already his second team. Mm-hmm. He started with the Mariners. And he's like, am I going to get a third chance or are they just going to let me go? Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it was his friendship with Pedro that got him another chance. And we got a Hall of Famer out of it. Yes, Think about did. that for a while. We're running a little show. We want to be respectful of your time. I want to ask a couple of real quick questions. Well, not maybe not, but I do want to ask you, you know, you've been researching and writing books and doing this uh, for a long time for your career. Any favorite stories? What's been your favorite project to work on? What's been your favorite thing you've uncovered or most unexpected thing maybe? Any good stories for us? Putting you uh, on the spot. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote about one of them. Uh, for the Profe column, and that is, I love Indiana Jones movies. And what I did in searching for the grave of Alex Pompez was I actually learned that it was right across the street from where my grandmother lived for 25 years. Wow. And I said, when I discovered his gravesite, I was like, for that day, I was Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> You were destined to be in this. You know that. There was no, no <laughs> doubt about it when you were born. This was going to be your career with the family and all the, the background with that. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're getting to baseball playoffs. We, we can't let you go without asking you who, who are the players we need to be watching that, you know, going through the rosters of the teams that are qualified or going to qualify. There's a lot of impact players that are Latino descent um, that we need to pay attention to, whether we're in Chicago or elsewhere. Well, Yeah. I mean, of course, you got it. Wilson Contreras, he's back from the injury. He's got the bat. He's got the glove. Hopefully, Lackey doesn't lead him astray and get him thrown out of too many games. So, uh, <laughs> um, you have to you make the playoff roster first, though. <laughs> uh, you gotta, yeah, you got to look Wilson. out for Wilson having an impact. Uh, Javi will do something during the course of the playoffs that's going to make us all say, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, those are two big guys. Lindor, my goodness. He started hot. The, the team kind of went through a May-June lull, but their August and September was totally in fuego. And, you know, so, of course, Lindor leading his team. Altuve, I mean, there's so many great guys. Um, so Altuve has been the spark plug for the entire year with the Astros as has been Marwin Gonzalez. And they say it down in Houston, you can't spell win without Marwin. And stuff, <laughs> you know. But here's the guy that I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about that it is when we stop talking about him is because he's playing well and he's contributing. Nobody's talking about Yasiel Puig anymore. But mm-hmm. he is jumping over walls. 
He is throwing runners out. Yeah. He is making plays. And that 11-game losing streak of the Dodgers is over. And the one consistency within that was Yasiel was keeping it together. And the team kind of caught up to him. And when we stop talking about him, look more closely at what Yasiel is doing. Because mm-hmm. yeah. when Yasiel is the consistent barometer, the Dodgers are playing hot. <laughs> yeah, well, and you've got, you know, your Yankees, Gary Sanchez from the Dominican, one of the quickest to 50 home runs. Sevi, Sevi. Uh-huh. Luis Severino has been the quietest <laughs> ace yes. in baseball. Uh, and look at how many games he's only given up one run or less in terms of starts. Forget quality starts. What about ace-like starts? He leads the league. Well, and, and Cubs fans have to have to thank Aroldis Chapman. He's he's your Yankees property now, but certainly one of the reasons we have a ring. Cubs have uh, Jose Quintana from from Colombia that uh, came over. That's a big deal. Uh, Hector Rondon. Can, can you explain though, Professor, the uh, longevity of Mr. Bartolo Colon out of the big Dominican with, with, in, with Minnesota, who is the first team ever to lose a hundred games and then make the playoffs the next year? And there's no coincidence because he got traded there this season, clearly, as 44 years old. Or Bartolo young was in that case. Uh huh. Bartolo was like DFA. <laughs> and like everybody's like, is it over? And he goes, it's not coincidental <laughs> that the Twins' resurgence, they're buoyed up, was expedited by the presence of Bartolo Colon. Again, I saw this video. And it's Jose Barrios, Irvin uh, uh, Santana. It's like five twin Latinos in a car and big sexies in the back. You know, <laughs> and they're all just like hanging out with Bartolo. The players love Bartolo. He's a fun guy, but he's also like he's a player. He's a gamer. And he could have easily said, you know what? I blew it with the Braves. I'm done. He ends up with the playoff team. Yeah, of yeah. course. And he, ends up contributing because of his presence. And, you know, in that way, he's very similar to, to Julio Franco. Like, these guys have a longevity that's <laughs> driven by the passion that they have for the game. Julio Franco played in Japan like five years, then came back and played another three four seasons. Wow. Yeah. When I was a kid, he was always my 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 micro league baseball fan, uh, uh, sleeper pitch. You play micro league when you were a kid on the Commodore? I don't know if that was... You're, Man, you're, you're taking us back, but yes. I know, old school on that. He was always my guy. I loved him. He it, the, the computer, I think uh, Moneyball would love him. The Sims loved him for some reason. Uh, some of the young players, like there's a lot of really young players that are making an impact now too. Uh, who do we need to be paying attention to uh, that are the guys that j- are just coming up now? Who's the next generation? What you'll notice is at the beginning of the season, a number of the guys that La Vida Baseball touted as guys to watch for in the 2017 season, they've been the guys to make the difference. Mm-hmm. And right. so, you know, this is part of what we do at La Vida Baseball is that we have this group of contributors who have, you know, I'm the history guy. And Clemson Smith Muniz, he is the reporter guy and he has contacts and he knows how to get stories. And Henry Pacheco, he is our social media guru and he knows how to tell stories via the new media and we have contributors from throughout the country that are able to look at who are the next generation. And that's where we put our team together to get at these stories. And you know, that's what makes baseball fun. 
No, it does. Yeah, there's a couple. And I think Houston is set up pretty well. Boston, I think, no. Through And again, you mentioned this. It's not an accident that they've got a lot of guys that are being very or having a lot of success because they have that background. The Xander Bogarts. Oh, God. And, De- Devers, Rafael Devers. Yeah. Who, yeah. who hit that home run off or rolled as Chapman. I'm sorry to bring that back up to you, but <laughs> you're in the playoffs. I, I, saw, I saw Devers on, uh, on um, MLB Network the day before he did that, talking with Harold Reynolds, and he was there's two really interesting dimensions of this. Harold was asking all the questions in English. Devers was responding in Spanish, but he understood exactly what Reynolds was asking him. And so there was an interpreter there, but who translated what Devers' response into English, but Devers was totally, you know, understood what the question was in English. So that mm-hmm. was really fascinating. The other fascinating part, and the part where it got me in the heart, was when Devers said, when I'm facing a, a pitcher, what I try to do is stay within my swing and try to drive the ball to left center field. That night, <laughs> he's facing Chapman, and that's precisely what he did. Mm-hmm. He didn't overswing. He let Chapman provide the initial power, and he just went with the pitch. And that ball just kept sailing, sailing, sailing right over the fence in left center field. And he did exactly what he says, that is my approach to hitting. And as long as he keeps that and layoffs the super high fastballs, he is always going to be a problem. Well, that's no, you know, they might hit that too. That's okay. You're following the uh, Vlad Guerrero. Uh, Professor, I, I could talk baseball all day. I think Dion could too, but we know you might have some classes to teach and some students to talk to. So um, thank you so much, Professor Burgos Jr., for joining us today. Those are really awesome stories. I want to mention too uh, that uh, Levita Baseball also has that connection to Viva Baseball at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So next time I go to the hall, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Hopefully it'll be a couple of years with my son playing baseball and as a little kid, but you know, no pressure on him. We'll, we'll go whether he's playing or not. Uh, you can learn more about Levita Baseball at lavitabaseball.com and you can also, we have an awesome social media presence on Facebook, Twitter, uh, are you guys on Instagram too? We are okay, on Instagram. So I know you guys are doing a great job with that, with the newsletters. Uh, thanks to Tad Bamford at Teamworks Media. Uh, he's a good friend of ours and, and uh, a pain work, painless network po- uh, person. Uh, he made the introduction here and always speaking of painless networking. Thanks to Chris Hartwig for letting us jump onto his podcast airwaves. Again, a little plug for him if you haven't listened to his podcast. Definitely check that out. Thanks for listening to us uh, on behalf of Professor Burgos. He's Dion Thomas. I'm Eric Schmidt, and we'll meet you next time down the court on the next fadeaway.